right, well, good evening and welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. My name is Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. So this show is, um, uh, our, our motto in the show is challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. Tonight, we're going to be discussing the idea of disenchantment. Um, so we're covering, if you're following us, we're covering chapter two of Paul Gould's book titled Cultural Apologetics. And so if you've been following our shows, you know that a month ago we covered uh, the first chapter. So we tried our best to define what cultural apologetics is, and that is something that uh, we've been doing at apologetics.com. And uh, it's good to know that we have a champion in Dr. Gold here. And uh, uh, I would recommend uh, that you guys pick up his book called Cultural Apologetics. It was published a couple years ago, and uh, lots of good stuff there. And our task is to, at least for tonight, is to cover Chapter 2. And it's on disenchantment. And with me tonight is uh, Lenny Esposito. Hi, Lenny. Hey, Harry. How are you? Good, good. And uh, we don't have Jacob with us, uh, but he should be back uh, next month. So it's just you and I. Yeah, it will be an intimate conversation. That's in 20,000 of our closest friends. There you go. Uh, and if you want to call, if, if you want to chime in, if you have any thoughts, ideas on the whole idea of disenchantment or enchantment, give us a call. Uh, our number is 888-995-5552. If you're listening to us right now, we are live. It is August 28th, right? Because it's really after, uh, midnight, yeah. after midnight. So we are live. Give us a call if you if you wish. But we are going to talk about disenchantment. Uh, of course, that's the opposite of uh, enchantment, yeah. or it's so- sort of a digression from enchantment. We'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, the, the one thing I, li- I like w- about what we're doing, Lenny, is um, th- this is apologetics. This is uh, under the umbrella of defending uh, your faith and strengthening the believers and um, – but but the umbrella is broad and and it covers things like culture, right? I mean, there's scientific apologetics, there's all sorts of uh, kinds of apologetics, uh, but we are really focusing on cultural apologetics. And uh, w- one of the f- key features is um, you look at uh, the culture at large and you begin to maybe observe or analyze things that make up, you know, what animates uh, the society that you're, you're observing? What are, what, what are some of the things that preoccupy them and w- where they spend resources and um, spend their time? And, and typically, once you identify those things, you could say, huh, that, that's a cultural artifact. Let's, let's look into that. So uh, this particular one, though, is an absence of enchantment. And so we want to clarify our terms this evening. Um, I'm going to give some examples later, but Lenny, I mean, what, what, what do you think disenchantment slash enchantment means, at least in our apologetics context this evening? What are we trying to say here? Well, there, there's two kinds of ways of understanding it. If you, if you were to look at, say, um, 
a sports hero or someone who is a, an entertainer that you've held in high regard, right? The person you've idolized. And then you find out that they're flawed and they've uh, done some things or maybe they've said some things that were unseemly. And you might say, I'm disenchanted with him. I've, I've, I, I've come to see him less as something m- magical or, 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 or to be admired, to be revered. An enchanted individual may be somebody you hold higher than regular humanity. And when you're disenchanted, you've lost all that kind of concept and precinct. Like disillusion, Like right? disillusion, yeah, to one, a degree. One term, yeah. So, but in our greater society, traditionally human beings have understood that their part in the world is effective, but they aren't the primary mover of the world, that there are other forces and not merely just natural forces, that there are other minds that may be working in the world, either for their benefit, such as a god or gods, or to their detriment, such as a demon or other adversary. And most of humanity throughout most of our history have held to there's something out there that's bigger than us. Uh, We're mortal. We die. We understand that there's we, we didn't create ourselves, and we don't necessarily want to die, but we understand that there's there's these kinds of issues. So, so an enchanted world would, would see a world where we are one part of a larger whole, and that larger whole is a way that we understand reality. When we are disenchanted, then, what we're seeing is the fact that people are now starting to believe that basically they are the central informative aspect of their reality they become gods they become so so all of the universe gets interpreted through my understanding and my system of how i want it to be or how i think it should be it becomes internal and personal as opposed to saying you know external and saying that that there's an objective nature out there now it becomes and we see this you know the, the easy way is the transgender movement right right there is no objective idea of sex that is simply there we hold to no no we can be whatever we want to be right. we can we can uh, interpret our life to however we we see fit so disenchantment takes it's really a self-reflective view. It takes a psychological view of who I, who, how I understand truth, how I understand the world. And I get to filter it through my processes because I'm the ultimate answer to how the world actually is. As opposed to I have to answer to someone else. And there are other minds that may actually control destinies and define realities beyond who I am. Yeah. That's good. Thanks, Lenny. The uh, subtext for tonight, so I did title this show Disenchantment, and then the subtext is um, The Emptying of the World. And uh, I stole that from um, Dr. Gould. Uh, It's in his book. But he stole it from C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Uh, uh, So I want to read. All right. So, uh, or maybe before I even read that, 
A good way to think of disenchantment is probably the opposite of enchantment. So if you have an idea of what enchantment is, the opposite or, or the degradation of that is disenchantment. Uh, or as uh, I'm going to read the quote later, the emptying of the world, as C.S. Lewis would put it. But le- we're all familiar with the enchanted kingdom, right, yeah. at Disneyland. So we pay, I don't know, upwards of $200 to... Uh, spend a whole day and hopefully have some fun because it is the happiest place on earth, right? Uh, that's a high price to pay, and I get it. Uh, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I read somewhere Disney keeps increasing the prices, not because costs are increasing. No, they just want to discourage the crowd. Right. And, and 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 yet, you know, people are taking out loans to pay for uh, this exorbitant entrance fee, and it, it's. It, it it's not working. Pe- people want to go and be enchanted in the enchanted kingdom. So, what do you find in the enchanted kingdom? Talking flowers, talking birds. Uh, you've got animals. You know, having conversations, interacting with human beings like they're just. That's just all part of the reality, right? You you've got trees that walk. It, it's. Your imagination could run wild on on some of these things. And we love that, apparently. It brings us joy and happiness. And it fulfills certain longings that are are somehow deep within our souls. Uh, We resonate with these things. Isn't that interesting? Uh, And yet we, once we walk out of the premises of Disneyland, somehow we think that whole world, we've left that world, and it's just for that place and for that time. But, no, we bypass it so we can go back in there as many times as we want, right? Yeah. So, so when, you, when you think of the enchanted kingdom, and, and, and again, some, some of those memories, right, are embedded in us because we visited places like those when we were young, and they never really depart from us. And, and part of us longs for a world in which we could fly like Peter Pan or swim with Moby Dick or, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, or we can talk to your pet dog or something like that, yeah. you know. Uh, so the, the, you're right. There's something magical about that. So, so if you were to approach Disneyland with disenchanted eyes, what you would see is you wouldn't see a pirate ship flying over the cities of London. You would see uh, a mechanical cart flying over LED lights and painted plywood. That's right. And, and that would be that would be a disenchanted world. Again, it's 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 taking and and I guess to some degree that's true, but that's not the point. The point is if we live in a disenchanted world, if we take the world in a disenchanted way, then what we're saying is there really it's it's not that there's a god there who is um, ultimately the one who guides and shapes our victories and our uh, defeats. It's, you know, God doesn't uh, bring the floods or the earthquakes or the fruitful seasons of harvest. It's just the, just the facts. Mechanism, the brute mechanistic, right, mechanistic. Right, just like the mechanisms that drive the—, the and. And this is what we see in disenchantment. This is what Charles Taylor says is, is that, um, you know, 
there was a divine purpose and action to the cosmos. They would understand that, that there was a, there was a divine purpose and action in building societies that we are reflecting in our nature the way we were wired to work with one another because that's the way our creator wants to work with us. And this is all prior to the 1500s, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's, yeah, that's, Charles that's, Taylor would say all of this was true right. in our worldview. True to the extent that he even makes the point that um, in such a world, atheism comes close to being inconceivable with these features that they don't have to necessarily believe in the God of Abraham. But there would be an idea of higher power, higher authority, some kind of shaping deity that to whom we have to be answerable in some way. And in just enchanted society, in a secular society, basically we're saying, nah, we don't have to worry about that other stuff. And it's not that people don't necessarily give credence to it. Oh, I believe in God. It's that they don't live like it. And that's a big distinction. So so there may be those who say, yeah, I believe in God, but he becomes my divine genie in the sky. When I'm in trouble, I'll pray to him. Otherwise, I'm just going to live my life the way I want, right? The, that moral therapeutic deism concept where, where just leave me alone. I'll do whatever I want. And maybe if I get in trouble and I can't figure it out, maybe I'll pray. But that's, that's pretty much the disenchanted society that would write, oh, I, uh, you know, I'm hurt. I've, I've, I've injured myself. What should I do? Well, we need to get medical attention. Well, what about prayer? You know, no, we don't, we, yeah. we don't have time for that. We need to get medical attention. No, sometimes right. maybe prayer might be the best right. solution. It's the always first, the best, right? The first <laughs> solution. So, Well, let me read to you uh, what C.S. Lewis says about uh, disenchantment. And he just has a amazing way of putting words together, right? So I'm quoting here, and, and this is, uh, I'm quoting what uh, Dr. Gold is quoting here. Uh, here's what C.S. Lewis says. At the outset, the universe appears packed with will, intelligence, life, and positive qualities. Every tree is a nymph and every planet a god. Man himself is akin to the gods. The advance of knowledge gradually empties this rich and genial universe. First of its gods, then of its colors, smells, sounds, and tastes, Finally, of solidity itself, as solidity was originally imagined. So that's where we get the subtext. It's the emptying of this world. So the world is devoid of transcendence, of supernatural, of anything. Uh, It's like it's become a box, and nothing exists outside of this uh, naturalistic box. Nothing can get out of it. Nothing can get in it. It's almost like since we're on the topic of, or the author of Charles Taylor, it's uh, his imminent frame uh, mm-hmm. idea. By the way, uh, we'll be mentioning authors and books, and hopefully you take notes or pick up on these because we would really encourage you guys to, um, if you can build a library, consider some of these books. So I, I know uh, Lenny has this tome of a book. The Secular Age. The Secular Age by Charles Taylor. It's a must-have. Even if you don't plan to read it, you just need to buy it and put it on your shelf because (laughs) you might one day want to read it. Uh, Again, we've already recommended Cultural Apologetics by Paul Gold. Good stuff. Um, In a while, you'll you'll be uh, introduced to ideas by uh, 
Peter Berger, so another good author, uh, definitely one of the uh, more influential philosophers of our day, for sure. He, I mean, he passed away a few years ago, just recently, but he is definitely one of the most influential uh, sociologists, sorry, not, not philosophers, but sociologists of our time. Um, good stuff. Uh, Rumor of Angels is what he wrote. So, all right, uh, C.S. Lewis also talked about the four stages of enchantment. Do you want to mention that a little bit? Um, well, he, yeah, he wrote it in a um, little, I guess, a, an analogy Yes. Uh, uh, called Talking About Bicycles, which is I truly appreciate since I ride bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's, that's why I assigned you to talk yeah. about that. <laughs> so he, uh, as, as Gould says, he... he C.S. Lewis asks us to consider how we approach a bicycle, right? Uh, initially, you, you see a bicycle and it's just a thing. It's, right. as, as a young kid, it can do nothing for you. It's, it's there. It's complex. Okay. It's part of the furniture of the world, but it doesn't mean anything. Once you're old enough to ride a bicycle, though, and you've tried it and you catch your balance, um, all of a sudden— it's this thing that, that can propel us, that can sustain us. And you get excited as a kid to ride a bicycle. I remember as a, my Schwinn Stingray when I was young, right? That, uh, that <laughs> Banana was, seats. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was great. <laughs> um, we love our – it takes us places farther and you can go real – it just it – just, it exhilarates you in the freedom that you the found wind it. against your face yeah. and yeah. However, when you start to grow older, uh, all of a sudden, oh, ride, ride a bike! I, you know, can't we just drive there? You know, it's like what a what a work that would be. Uh, and people start to think about it not kind of in a utilitarian concept, and it becomes a chore. They've di- they've disenchanted themselves from the yeah. concept of a bicycle. Whereas so, that's a kid, the, so that's the third stage. Yeah, that's they, the third stage yeah. was where you used to love it. You yeah. used to be enchanted with it. It was the thing that that gave you passion, purpose, and a reach to a broader world. Now you see it as nothing but inhibiting. Uh, and a lot of people, according to Lewis, never move from this stage. This is how they kind of get stuck in the world at, at, at large. But a few of us may re-engage the bicycle and not merely see it as an exercise vehicle or as a way to save gas or what have you. But there's a you remember the thrill. You can still feel the wind on your face if you approach it right. You can still feel that there is a sense of freedom. You can remember those feelings you had in a child. So you can be re-enchanted with the bicycle. And that uh, brings, and, and Lewis even says, that brings a level of joy and a type of joy, that, that nostalgic joy, that resonating with your prior freedom that is something unique. And even being re-enchanted, that becomes doubly exciting yeah. because you have the, the, the understanding and the feeling of what it does for you, but you also understand uh, the beauty and the freedom that it gave you even in your first encounters. So, And we'll definitely cover uh, maybe the start of the process of getting re-enchanted. So we will definitely cover that. Now, um, w- one of the things that I do appreciate about Gould's book here is um, he covers, even briefly, which is important, the causes of 
disenchantment. So we want to mention that. Um, I know he starts with Plato and um, a philosopher 15, you know, 500 years before B.C., around there, a Greek philosopher, and introduced ideas to us called forms. Lenny, you want to talk a little bit about that? What, what, Plato is just regarded to be the father of, I guess, uh, medi- ancient philosophy, I guess. You know, the, the, they credit him, Socrates, and well, Aristotle. First he, yeah, first Gould says that our first step is suppressing the truth about God. So ignoring that God is God, that he has the ultimate say in our world. Um, and we then look to other things, either ourselves or or other idolatries, perhaps, to take the place of God. Then he talks about the emptying of our world, where there is, and Plato had this idea that there's an objective nature to things, that things have a kind of an essence that define who they are, what they are. And so, so for example, and I, I, I always challenge even my kids, I say, you know, um, how do you define a chair? And it's interesting how a chair is notoriously difficult to to yeah. define, right? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, a table could be a chair. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah it, it, it's a piece of furniture with four legs. Well, yeah, that's yeah. a what yeah. about a table? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a thing you sit on. Well, is a couch a chair? <laughs> um, a no, no, no. <laughs> a, a thing that you sit on that's a that's for a single individual. Oh, okay. Well, there's a stool, you know. And so all of a sudden, it becomes really difficult yeah. to define. Yeah. But there's there is this thing that we all know that's a chair, yeah. and we know that that's not not a chair. Right. right. And so so uh, Plato would say that there's this ideal of a chair. There's right. this chairness yeah. that all chairs share. There's something common to all of them that makes them a chair that no non-chairs have. Uh, so there's an external <laughs> reference to what makes a chair. Right. And uh, that's, a, that's the idea of realism. Right, right. Uh, but when some people say, well, a chair is just simply a label that we give some kinds of things that have certain similar shapes, and uh, we just don't use that label for other things, that sounds arbitrary. That sounds... And that becomes... Basically, you're saying the idea of a chair doesn't really exist. It's just it's just convention, and that's the idea of nominalism. Right. Now that that there's there's just names of things, right. and so uh, another move to disenchantment is we when we empty our world of not merely just the idea of chairs like Plato has, but that there's outside external purposes and external understandings of morality of what it means to be human of what it means to have virtue and what the great virtues are if you start to say all of those things don't exist out there they're really just my personal interpretations whatever i want to put a label on it that's where we get this emptying of our world and the problem is is human beings aren't built to live in an empty world they become starved for meaning because when you start saying nothing has meaning anymore, um, it, you, you lapse into despondency. You know, it's interesting. I know we're going to come up on a break soon, but I, I wanted to just say the jump from realism to nominalism is an interesting one. Um, and, and before uh, knowing about this, I remember 
admiring William of Ockham, you know, for his Ockham's mm. razor and everything. But uh, he's known to be the philosopher that brought uh, nominalism about. But it's interesting, and this is where ideas have consequences. He actually had good intentions for come in, coming up with the idea of nominalism, had disastrous effects. Mm. Uh, uh, in fact, one one author, maybe we we might get the locate the quote, but pretty much was responsible, according to this one guy, uh, for the decadence of their day. But he wanted to rescue God from uh, real universal things because these things like chairness, tableness, or, or these eternal properties uh, had been understood to coexist with God. So that that even God could not, let's say, get rid of certain properties. Like, right. there's no way that the concept of one, you know, number one, could could be eradicated. I mean, that's impossible. So William of Ockham thought, well, nothing could be beside God. Nothing stands with God on this. So he literally got rid of he got rid of those things and said, all right. So now we're going to invent these properties that are just in name only and that, that that nothing now stands with god but it's just like you said convention so yeah. it's nominalism we 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 get uh it literally means by name only right like if you're right. nominal christians you you're just a christian by name so you, you just have uh labels to these things and nothing more and uh I suppose that that starts the downward spiral. Of, yeah, because uh, as um, again, Gould quotes uh, Michael uh, Gillespie. He says it's not merely a rejection of the formal, but also of final causes. Yeah, that's right. So you, all of a sudden, you start to lose a, a causation scheme, and again, it therefore puts the the kind of burden back on you to shape your world. Yeah, that is absolutely uh, dangerous when you get there, when nothing is now transcendent, right? Nothing right. nothing real outside of you exists. There's nothing bigger than me, and, it, yeah. and I know how flawed I am, I, and, and I'm looking for meaning, right? Well, why am I here? What, well, if you say, there is no reason, you're just here. It's, it's, there's nothing bigger than you, and you're just an accident of nature, you know, you, yeah. you get you, you you devolve into nihilism, and nihilism devolves into depression. And uh, right, right, it, 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 no, it, there is no meaning to be found. And then finally, it's it comes down to empiricism would be the final thing, which in this day and age, that is kind of like where we're at right now. Right, is, there's nothing. Uh, all the only thing that you can know of is what the sciences tell us what's experimentally proven everything else is either subjecture or um, just uh, simply non-existent well we're coming up on a station break so please stay tuned and we'll be right back after a few word from our uh, sponsors The mission of apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. 
on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. How many times we've heard someone say, life just isn't fair. Hello, this is Chuck Swindoll. Listen, life is not fair. Are any of us surprised by that news? Families are torn apart by divorce. Disease comes and steals the light from a loved one's eyes. For some of us, it's been an unfair situation at work or at school. But listen to what Peter reminds us. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear intimidation. And do not be troubled, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Don't let the unfairness of life steal the joy from your hearts. Pastor and teacher Chuck Swindoll. Visit Insight for Living's website at insight.org. Hi, I'm Pastor Steve Wilber from Core Church, Los Angeles. In John chapter 5, Jesus asked a man who had been sick and lame for 38 years, Do you wish to be well? What kind of a question was that? I'm sure he said, Of course I wish to be well. Why are you even asking me a question like that? Yet not all wish to be well. Let me ask you, do you wish to be well? Do you wish to have the blessings of God unfold in your life? Many would say yes, but let me ask you this. Are you willing to embrace God's word? Are you willing to grow in your faith? Are you willing to give up areas of compromise that have crept back into your life? Are you willing to die to your own desires and aspirations? Because that's his calling for each of us. If we wish to be well, today is a new day. Let's turn from our vices. Let's get serious with our gracious Savior. Let's rise up as men and women of God and let's shine his glory in this dark world we live in. Check us out at corechurchla.org. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Well, you've been listening to the Apologetics.com radio show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. And uh, with me uh, in the studio is Lenny Esposito, founder and president of Come Reason Ministries. By the way... um, any update on uh, what you've been doing uh, over at Come Reason? I know uh, I saw oh. I saw you interview uh, Jay Warner Wallace. Yeah, I got yeah. to speak uh, with Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, put that up on my YouTube channel. He's got a new book coming out, Person of Interest. So we spent about an hour chatting about those ideas and what's going on with him there. That's gonna the good book. Yeah, it's, it's coming out next book. month. So that's one to keep yeah. your eye on. Uh, was it also uh, interviewed? Uh, by Brian Notton of Apologetics 315. Uh, I did an interview with him way back in 2011, actually, and he's been... Uh, he's still doing uh, he, well, Apologetics? He, he, yeah, he had stopped for a number of years, and he's picked the podcast back up again, so he's, oh. he's kicking it back up. Came 
came back, talked to me, and we talked a little bit about superheroes and, and, and things like that, which was fun. So if you want to find out more about that, uh, just jump over to Apologetics 315 and uh, listen to the podcast there. That, that was a good and, and on well. your, your, tell our uh, listeners the name of your site where they can come reason dot org. So there you, there you and go. Then you can go to the yeah, find out most everything that you want to find out from us. From You're that also site. in the middle of writing a book on superheroes. Yes, right? that's Let's... part of what we were talking okay. about was uh, was how I'm uh, working on this idea, part of the cultural apologetic. Matter of fact, our discussion really evolved a lot around uh, cultural apologetics, what yeah, it is yeah. and how you do it and. And just finding those common touchstones yeah. that you can um, tell people, hey, there's a bigger, there's a bigger reality here, and you you assume it in your art yeah. in the things that you desire. That's right. Uh, and why don't we look for the you know the true myth, as C.S. Lewis would put, where the the real yeah. Uh, the points of, of connection, yeah. which we will talk about later. So this is a, a really good segue, which I hadn't planned until just. Uh, a few seconds ago, so that's good. Yeah. So when when might you be finished with uh, writing? Hopefully, early it? next year we'll try to get it out. So, nice. Yeah. Okay. That's actually one of uh, uh, the steps to reenchantment. Those kinds of things. Yeah. What you're doing. Exactly. That's great. That's great. All right. So uh, we want to talk about uh, the characteristics of disenchantment. What what does that feel for us, uh, and what does it do to to us? Um, what are some of the features of disenchantment, Lenny? Well, human beings are, by nature, beings made to recognize and worship something beyond themselves. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you are. You, you're meant to, you know, we are wired. There's, you know, to put it in a, a crass way, there's a God-shaped hole in our heart, right? Uh, and Augustine saw this uh Every, that that there is a felt need mm-hmm. for God. When you are disenchanted, when you deny God exists, then you have this felt absence of God, but you can't fill it with God because you don't believe in God anymore. So you have to fill it with something else. And uh, you, you become incoherent, really, in what in all these other pursuits that you try to find. Um it becomes, you know, just maybe I can fill it with politics. Maybe I can fill it with uh, stuff. Maybe I can fill it with um, my favorite sports team. Maybe I can get really pat- – there's a reason why we have comic cons. And, and these – you know, it's amazing how in any show or right or popular culture – so you have the Marvel – super fans or you have the supernatural television series super fans and you have or even musical groups guys who i have to see them at every concert that that tours and every and you have these guys who this becomes their passion and and the thing that they almost idolize and it's because there's again they're they're seeking this identity outside of themselves but what they're doing is they're they're creating a a poor 
almost like virtual a cheap replacement, like you it said. Was, yes, yeah, replacement. Cheap of, substitute. Of who, it reminds me of that passage in Isaiah where you go down, you chop out a tree with half of it, you shape a deity to pray to, the other half you burn in the fire. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, and I, Isaiah is making fun of these idol worshippers saying, what are you doing? Well, don't we do that as well? Because really none of this is truly transcendent. It's simply the byproduct of what human beings have made, much like a, a an idol that you would pray to. Yeah, and in uh, in the book, um, Gold talks a little bit about Nietzsche when when he famously declared the death of God, and if I'm not mistaken, the sense in which that was uh, written or uttered, it's not that uh, all of a sudden God seized ceased to exist it's more like uh, they came to an understanding that everything else somehow was meaningless and everything yeah died so so the madman says you know we've killed him we god is dead we've killed him and then he says perhaps you aren't ready for this yet because nietzsche was at least honest enough to understand that when you say God dies, that means our entire moral frame dies with it. You have nothing upon which to build an an objective morality. You have nothing upon which to build uh, the society that we currently you know, live in and upon it's it, it, because it all had a structure starting from a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so when you take God out of that, you're you're taking the linchpin out from underneath the foundation. Yeah. And a lot of people actually uh, mistake Nietzsche when, when they read that. They, they think he, he's this triumphalist person saying that, uh, that we have killed God. No, I think he actually wrote it in, in a l- lamenting type of a um, way. Yeah, he knew, that it, w- he knew right. that it was going to radically change. And this is where the whole idea of the Uberman right, comes right. in, that, 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 peop- that there has to be a will to power, and there's going to be a radical reshifting of even what we understand is right and wrong. Right, and, and we're seeing some of that right now, actually. When, when God no longer is in charge, then who else becomes in charge, right? Man. Right. It, there's no other. Exactly. There's no other thing. Yeah, I mean, nature might, but uh, I I doubt it. I, I don't think that's real. Um, well, what about consumerism? This is a big thing that I, I think is not preached from the pulpit enough. Meaning the dangers of consumerism, obviously not not the uh, the joys of it or the excesses of it, but really, w- what is consumerism doing to us in many ways? Uh, and and, and at, this, what's dangerous about this is many times we're not even aware of how this is affecting us. And I'm not talking about even just spiritually. I'm talking about as a human being. Like, for yeah. instance, um, you know, there's this craze, right, about uh, waiting in line to get the latest iPhone and, and people will camp out for days. Well, th- just think about that, right? You're spending like $1,200 on this device that you're going to replace that does everything already that you want it to do, but somehow you just need the latest and greatest, and you're willing to spend a few days in a tent. I mean, how ridiculous does that sound, right? And and we've been socialized or conditioned into doing that already. Right. That, right. That's the weird thing, right? So, so two things happen in this in our consumers' culture that that the we gotta have it, we gotta you know whatever that is. Uh, the first is it, we become more base in our approach. 
we become so the highest ideal of man is to develop his reason it's not to act on his appetites animals act on their appetites right if if a dog wants to um, fornicate the dog will fornicate you know he may he may even use your leg you never know uh <laughs> yeah. if he wants to eat off the plate he'll eat off the plate that but those are those are animal actions just acting on our appetite i feel this urge and i respond to it by satisfying the urge in our consumer culture you're actually you're actually reinforcing that i got to have that i got to have that right so so one hat aspect of it is it it feeds off of our the most base instincts we have it doesn't raise us to our highest ideals in the second aspect of that though is because they are base instincts they're they're ultimately unfulfilling so yes you can have the latest iphone and yes you can connect all your friends on social media through that latest iphone but that's not real relationship ask any parent whose son or daughter is serving in the military, would you rather want to talk with them for 15 minutes via Zoom when they're half a world away? Or would you rather have that 15 minutes having them just sit next to you and watch a movie? There is a difference between the person being there and the person being on a screen. And, and that difference is, is a difference in kind. It's night and day. One is so, so, the consumer culture cultivates a false idea of human flourishing. And it's, a, again, a cheap byproduct, yeah. I think. Well, like you're saying, kind of like the base instincts that we apply toward acquiring uh, things, it's almost the same kind of a thing that we do in our human relationships. So obviously that those are, number one, two different things kinds of relationships things and people but then we apply uh the 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 relationship we have with things with people and uh it it doesn't take a genius to understand how devastating that is and in fact i I remember listening to jp moreland one time and one of the causes for high depression and anxiety in the west today is a lack of personal attachments oh i believe that absolutely well yeah we and this is what we're finding matter right. of fact uh, teenage girls primarily are suffering from online interactions because there's something about being online that's a lot like driving alone in the car you know yeah. i don't know why people think that with a, a vehicle that has windows all around it you th- can pick your nose and think <laughs> that nobody notices <laughs> But social right. media seems to be that way. Just because you're behind a computer screen and a keyboard and, and you know, you can type something in the privacy of your own home doesn't mean that everybody else doesn't see it. Mm-hmm. And and we see that happening quite a bit. But depression amongst uh, people who need these social interactions is way up. Yeah. way up. And, and the, the lockdowns from COVID have made it actually worse. You've seen yeah. a 30 percent spike right but yeah we need the social interaction and and we can't get it yeah by the stuff and it doesn't you know no matter how good the resolution is it doesn't matter and yeah and again if we're not careful we we tend to apply the same kinds of interactions we have with our inanimate objects to people and then we have a hard time we wonder yeah, why you objectify or, people that's right we objectify people that's uh, one one result of that so we wonder why 
uh, depression and anxiety is high because again we are unable to relate to one another yes. it's it's a challenge now uh, and, then, that, and then the next point uh, gold makes is blindness and foolishness where we start to if we are now the become the center of uh, defining our world then we can we start to believe in the most ridiculous notions and the most idiotic concepts that we can think we can change reality because we simply want it to be yeah. different than it is and we know that doesn't happen yeah you can't just will things to change yeah so it, gould uses uh, the transgender debate as a primary example there where somebody you know i just want to be yeah and and again that that actually goes back to the depression issues if you're understanding how rapid onset gender dysphoria happens and runs muck amongst young girls is because they become heroes and everybody salutes them for not being the prettiest girl in school, yeah. so to speak. Well, you mentioned something about coherence a while ago. Yeah, we we start coming up with nonsense, literally. We, we become incoherent, um, again, because truth now becomes relative, right? Um, we, and we lose all sense of what goodness, beauty, even look like. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, again, those are some of the features. Um of disenchantment. Uh, is there... Uh, gold covers one more... Idolatry. Idolatry, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, again, it's the uh, the preoccupation with whatever our self-appeasement is. Um, and he says, hey, we become a wraith of our best selves. That's a, that's a great analogy if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, yeah. right? <laughs> Where the nine rings for the mortal men doomed to die, how they become basically shells of themselves in their... They're they're automatons. They're yeah. um, manipulated by Sauron, but they have no flesh. Yeah, they're just yeah. simply eaten by this drive. I wonder and, if uh, the, the reason why zombie movies and TV series are so popular these days, you know, maybe in some ways we see ourselves as the zombies. <laughs> maybe, yeah. The, the wa- and that's the famous line in the in the Walking Dead, right? When he, he said, "We are the Walking Dead." It's mm. not the zombies; it's us, because sooner or later we're fated to that. Oh, that's a good e- one. Example. All right, so uh, the rest of our time, we definitely want to cover my favorite p- portion of this chapter. Uh, uh, gold uh, titles it Signs of Transcendence I know he borrows this from Peter Berger's Signals of Transcendence and um, you get that from Rumor of Angels it's a good book and um, the idea with re-enchantment now is the fact that maybe if, if since we are disenchanted maybe there are things some vestiges of things that uh, we can uh, grasp things that maybe we could th- they're just there maybe in front of our eyes and we just don't realize that these are the vestiges of um, transcendence so uh, I, Peter Berger is famous for identifying five of these things and uh, these qualities in human beings uh, according to Berger applies to all human beings uh, at all times, apparently. And I know uh, Charles Taylor has a similar concept. He identifies three. Uh, we we can mention that later. But I know with P- we'll just focus on Peter Berger's uh, list of these five things. Uh, 
I was talking to Lenny a while ago during the break. In my personal opinion, with the way culture is going right now, with with uh, a common language lacking, I think evangelists, church leaders, pastors, they need to be able to speak in ways in which um, the, the secular listeners understand. And uh, I would I would submit to you that uh, it's these five things that would definitely help. So again, these are the signals of transcendence. And uh, you want to cover the first one that uh, Peter Berger mentions? Yeah, well, the first one is the fact that we, we seek to uh, live in a world of order, that we want to see uh, things such a way that it's organized, that it's purposeful, that there's an end to it. There's a, a telos. There's a telos, a, yeah. There's a direction. Because um, we observe that in the universe. Right. We want to see order out of the chaos. We don't, right? And, and this is this is your mom coming into your Fix room. Fix your room. And says, <laughs> Clean your room. This pigsty is not worthy of anyone living here. Clean it up because you, we need to live in a world of order. Yeah. Oh, beyond that, society has orderly ways, right? You drive on a certain side of the road. Mm-hmm. You have certain laws that we all must follow as part of our social contract. Um, order provides a livable world. But if if that's not simply something superimposed, if we're, if we're holding to that the world is orderly, our lives should be orderly because the world is orderly, that makes no sense because everything in nature is random and tends to disorder right Dis- entropy is the is the name of the game yeah. in, in in the world so uh, but there is a delight there is a pleasure in having everything put away just right there's 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 a satisfaction even if it maybe doesn't make a lot of difference if you know that you did the hospital corners on the bed and things like that or you could bounce the corner up quarter off of the sheets there's 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 a pleasure in in that kind of an approach that says that's a good job done and so the idea that there would be an order seems to provide a pointer to a supernatural idea of order in the universe yeah you know it just reminded me actually of uh, the famous dr jordan peterson uh on uh, his advice oh. on trying to aim for higher bigger things or maybe to maybe allay some anxiety what does he say his first advice is fix make, your bed make your bed make your day. bed yeah make That's, your bed every day show you know tell yourself show yourself that that you've accomplished this that yep. there's an order to your life and you can go on and do more. Yeah. So I, I love it. So th- there's a connection with with some of these experts. Now um, the second one is play, and and you've talked a little bit about that. But how do you see human play as something that's transcendent? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I got to get that article that I was referring to a while ago. Um, but maybe I can talk in generalities. But number one, though, it's interesting, right? We just finished uh, watching the Olympics, mm. and that's a world. That's an international event where uh, you, you don't need a lot of explanations to figure out what they're doing. You know, so if like you have a bunch of guys running as fast as they can, you know, you want the person to 
run the fastest and that person is going to get all of the praise and accolades and everyone's cheering that person on. It, it, it's, not, it's not complicated and yet it's exciting and, and we can uh, attach ourselves to the athletes. You know, Part of us is thinking, oh man, that is just so fun. But, but in some sense that unites us, you know, that unites us, uh, which science can't, can't explain. So you, you figure, you, you know, if we're just a bunch of atoms in motion put together by chance, why would we care about those kinds of achievements? Yeah. And we have great fun watching those things. Uh, the, the other one is hope, right? Now, right. Hope doesn't, doesn't uh, require a lot of explanation, but uh, I, I was referring to this article that was out in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago about this Afghani teenager. And I, 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 I clipped the article because it reminded me of these two um, uh, signals of transcendence that come together, and that's hope and play. So this Afghani young person was one of those uh, victims that fell from the plane as it departed. He was uh, awarded some special accolade for for, uh, for soccer in his in his uh, in, in the country actually, and and his hope was to become a soccer player. And he was telling his brother he just needed to escape. He had hope. He needed to escape Afghanistan, knowing that the Taliban was going to squelch that that hope. Yeah. And can you imagine his desire to play professional soccer and with the hope of a brighter future, all met in that one instant and it, it was so great that it cost him his life right so so anyway so that that's hope so play hope, hope order points towards an end yes that, that you, the only way we can have hope is to know that the end is going to be better than the the current which again argues for an orderly it argues for a god directed life that god is bigger than us and he has a plan for us and and to the opposite of that, uh, there's a, a desire for justice, for ultimate justice, for the vanquishing of evil. This is something, all again, all of humanity has in common. We all understand when we are wronged or when we see egregious wrongs happen in the world that those individuals should be called into account for their yeah. actions and that they should be appropriately punished, that that punishment may extend beyond... If you're a murderer, if you're a mass murderer, you're, that a punishment can't simply end with the taking of your life because that the cost to you was less than the, co- than yeah. the pain that you inflicted upon others. Yeah. So there's actually an idea of eternality right. in punishment, which is another... And then the last one, because we're almost out of time, is uh, it, humor. Humor. Humor, yeah. yeah. So the idea that you can, you can laugh, that you can see irony in things, the idea that you can um, understand that the world isn't simply survival. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we even miss some of those things in oh, yeah. Scripture, even. That the Scripture is filled with humor. I mean, just... 
Think about all of the different kinds of animals God created. Well, even <laughs> even when we read the New Testament, right? You know, the Jesus is, uh, is facing off against the Pharisees, right? And and they're implying that he's illegitimately born. At least we know who our father is. You know, <laughs> you don't know who yours is. Right. And then Jesus comes back. Oh yeah, yeah I'll tell you who your father is. You're of your father, the devil. And I, <laughs> I could just picture his apostles going, "I love when he does that. I love when he just gets them like that. That's a great right. clip." You know? Right. Right. And, and who wouldn't be laughing at the, uh, you know, the encounter between Sarah and Abraham? You know, when when they're trying to ascertain or trying to figure out why she's pregnant now. Yeah, <laughs> at what's ninety all that or something. About? What's yeah? What's that about? Or or pawning her off as uh, his sister to yes. to, the, to the pharaoh or something like that. It's just that's just hilarious, you know. Sometimes we miss those kinds of things, but we we can all relate to that. And uh, again, I, I submit to to you guys uh, that that is one way to re-enchant our world again if we're able to speak into uh, th- those things into uh, our conversations with the, uh, our seeker our neighbor you know our co-workers I think they would listen to us mm. and uh, well if, it, it's again it's areas where they are poor right where they have an emptiness and if we could say hey we've there's something there that you can fill yourself with, and it's and it's substantive. It's not cotton candy. It's something you can bite into and actually chew. Right. That makes a big difference. And, and uh, again, uh, citing uh, Taylor, one of our favorite authors here, he calls them cross pressures. That's an easy term to remember because th- it it there's a pressure in there, and we don't know what the source is unless we help them direct their gaze to God. Yes. So you've been listening to Apologetics.com Radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. So special thanks to my co-host, Lenny Esposito, to our behind-the-scenes engineer, Jared, uh, and to your listeners. Until next time, good night. Good night.